Welcome back to the peripheral. I'm finding that uh, getting episodes out once a week is fairly impossible, so sorry. I think I'm going to settle on this being a bi-weekly podcast, so two a month is what I'll, I'll commit to for everybody. I would like to thank all the guests I've had on the show thus far. The last episode I know was fairly rough, and I would like to thank both Aaron's on the show. It was very strong of them to share their stories. On this episode, I'm joined by Natalia. She's actually a famous person. She lives in the UK and she has an incredible story. To summarize, when she was a teenager, her father, who was mentally ill, murdered her mother and she ended up making amends with her father and going on to donate a kidney to a stranger, which eventually led to her winning an award on the Pride of Britain Awards show. She's also written a book called Unconditional Love. Check it out on Amazon. Natalie is a fast talker, so strap in and pay attention, and I hope you enjoy. Uh, introduce yourself and we'll, we'll just all ask clarifying questions and stuff okay and I talk really fast sometimes so you might have to tell me to slow down no problem okay so my name is Natalie Ojano and I'm from the UK what do you actually know about my story did you actually read up or um I, I've read about it and uh, I watched the video that you were in so I know that at a uh, at a very young age you, you suffered a extreme tragedy with your your father uh, I don't know all the details about it, though, so I didn't know. Um, so the video you watched, that's an award, ser- it's, it's, um, an award ceremony we have in England. It's every year. It's run by our national paper. It's called the Daily Mirror, which is our national paper, Pride of Britain Award. And what they do is they have people for all over England that get nominated that do things above and beyond. And then the, um, the only people that are there, apart from the people that are winning the award, are all celebrities. So you have David Beckham, Simon Cowell, and it's just to give back to people um, that are just normal people that do amazing things. It's run every year since, I think, 1996, and it's a big thing in England. And the people of England, through the newspaper, nominate who they want to win this award. And it's done secretly. So when I won my award, I didn't even know I was in it till I won it. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's kept so secret. I was like, when they actually rang me and told me I won, I won it, I hung up. I thought someone was uh, playing a prank on me didn't actually know it was for real yeah because yeah. it's such a big thing here it's not it's um it's actually like the oscars for england yeah that's how many viewers view it in england it's very big and um, it's every october in england and you don't even know who's giving you an award or nothing go ahead and explain what why you got this award so i got the award for um going through from turning a positive uh, turning a negative into a positive from turning my mother's murder into something positive by donating a kidney to a stranger in memory of my mom to save a life in memory of my mom. You say in memory of your mom, so... Yeah, because when I was younger, my mom um, taught me about a donor card. There used to be a TV program in England where they used to be able to... Uh, it was about a hospital, and they actually showed you, like, live surgeries, and my mom loved it. Um, and they did, a docu- they did one series about donors, and I must have been about 12, about 12 or 13, and I said to my mum, 
explain this. I don't understand. And she said, when you die, you have to give your organs to people. You pass them on so that other people can live. And she said, you have a donor card. And she showed me hers and said, you're a bit too young, but you can have one. And, but when you're 18, you register it. And I was like, okay, I want one. And then when I got it, I saw it and I was like, yeah, this is what I want. But then I was a little bit like, ooh, I have to give my eyes to somebody. There's going to be somebody walking around with my eyes. My mom's like, yes, it'll save a blind child that can't see. So when I found out years later that when my mum died, because my dad had made sure she was technically dead before he called an ambulance, she couldn't donate her organs. And that mortified me because my mum was so um, into doing it. And how I got to donate was crazy. It didn't just happen overnight. I watched a film called Pay It Forward, where you do three kind things for three kind people. So my first one, I wanted it to be something big, but I didn't know what I wanted it to be. And I just left it at that. A guy I worked with had kidney problems, came back from an appointment and said, oh my gosh, I met this person who donated a kidney to somebody that was alive that they didn't know. We was both like, oh, that's a bit strange. Didn't know you could do that. And that was it. Didn't think anything of it. And then I just got quite sad that my mum's legacy was all about murder. And that wasn't what my mum was about. Mm. And when you Googled her name, it came up with this murder, this just tragedy. And it was just so depressing. And I thought, I wonder if I can change her legacy and change her story. Is that even possible? Because yeah. most people think you can. And I remembered the kidney. And I, so I was like, how do I go about doing this, even just inquiring? And it was very hard at that time. There was no charities. There was nothing around. I literally found just a link saying a kidney regional hospital phone number. And I just rang this woman and was like, do you know anything about donating kidneys to a stranger? Are you alive? And she's like, oh, yeah, that's us. Um, and, and she sent me a pack first and said, read through it. And I read through it. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Um, I made an appointment. And when I went to my first appointment, I just said to her, can you tell me whether buying my cells, whether I'm more English? So Because I'm English with my mum, but I was actually born in Italy. My dad's Italian. So have I got my dad's genes more in me or my mum's cells more in me? And they said, oh, we can test that because your kidney will um, goes more likely to for something from your so like a black person would donate to a black person here an Asian person donates to an Asian um, oh our Asians are different to yours you call Asian Chinese you don't oh. call Asians Chinese Asians to us are people from Pakistani India and, um, and, so and technically that is it's still Asian yeah. but yeah America just assumes Middle East and we're kind of dumb like that <laughs> yeah and so I was like oh wow so I was like well I'm fine going through all this testing to see if I can do it but I want to make sure of that first. And they said, oh, you can say no at any point to this, even to the point where just before you get put to sleep to actually do it. So I was like, okay. So they went away and tested my blood and it came back that I had more of my mum in me than my dad. So then I was like, right, I'm going to do this in memory of my mum because I know how much she really wanted to do it. Um, and I luckily I got to meet the guy. You're not supposed to meet him. I met him by chance. Um, so I never wanted to know anything about the person. I, um, I knew his age. He was 44 at the time I knew he was a male and I knew he'd got an acute illness that's all I knew um, and I didn't ever want to know anything else um, I only wanted to know if, if, he, if his body did it, rejected it I wanted to know if it, that happened mm-hmm. um, and that was it I didn't want to, I didn't want to know anymore I, that was it my gift gone and to me done and then I received a letter from him because you're allowed to write I received a letter from him and his mum and his mum's letter broke my heart because I never thought of it from a mother's perspective. <laughs> and she literally said that they'd been to arrange his funeral. He literally had a week to die. She prayed to God for an angel. And all of a sudden I appeared. Um, how she, she just couldn't understand why I was doing it. 
why would you do this for a total stranger? Like, put your life at risk for this other person. Um, and it was just heartbreaking, this letter. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So I wrote a letter back and explained it was a pay it forward, explained about my mum mm-hmm. um, without giving too much information so she could search me. Um, and was like, that's it. That's all. I've told you why. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And then I never heard anything more. And then on the way to work one day, I was reading the news about a charity that had just started called Give a Kidney to promote people to donate to strangers. And on this website, I was like, oh, I've done that. So I went into the website and there was a story from someone who had received a kidney, given a kidney and was waiting for a kidney. Now, the person that received one, everything that was in the in this interview was in my letter, except at the bottom it said, we never heard back from her. We think she died. And I was like, oh, <laughs> mum thinks I died like trying to save her son. Oh, my gosh. I was like, oh, my gosh. I like, his mum's going to be mortified. So I Googled because it had all his information on this thing. So I Googled him and found his company website. And it just said, under construction, please email me. And I just sent an email saying, is this the Chris that's in the newspaper today? And he was like, yes, can I ask why? And I was like, I think you may have my kidney. And then when we worked out, we had, I was like, please tell your mum I'm alive. Please tell your mum I'm alive. And then he, want him, he wanted to meet me and he took me as a surprise to meet his mum. She didn't know I was coming. Um, and that's how I, how I actually met him. And because the person that did the story in the, newspaper, in the news was a woman that works for the Daily Mirror. And so she heard that we met. And so she asked if she could do a follow story. And so he asked me and I said, yeah, I've got no problem with that. And it was that story that went into our national paper that went around on a bus uh, for the Pride of Britain and people voted. So 12,000 people voted for me to win this award. So they couldn't say my name. It was the girl that donated a kidney to her, for, to, for her mum in memory, to a stranger in memory of her mum. So it's quite funny because people say, oh, you did such a selfish act. And I didn't. I did something selfish, really, because it was something I needed to do for me and my mum because I forgave my dad for what he did. Yeah. Um, so obviously as well, sometimes when you Googled, it came up about how I forgave my dad when they didn't know the full story. Yeah. And they thought I was doing it against my mum and I had... People spit at me in my face saying your mum would disown you and, and really bad things. And I just needed to do something for my mum that was just between me and my mum. Yeah. Um, as much as it is selfless, to me, I did it in a selfish way. It was something I needed to do. And so h- how yeah. old were you when, when your father murdered your mother? Uh, 19. 19. And you're yeah. in, and at 19, though, I was like a 12-year-old. I was very immature for my age. I had a younger, I've got a younger brother. He's nine when my mum died. He was more mature than me. <laughs> I was very, I don't know why, as a teenager, I was very, very immature. Because my mum, like, I didn't understand about boys till I was like 17. When I had my first boyfriend, I was like, still like, I don't understand like I was just, I think because my parents, because my parents actually, I grew up a Jehovah's Witness, which is funny listening to your podcast <laughs> with that lady. I was like, oh, I remember that. So I was very naive to stuff. I didn't understand. I didn't, I wasn't taught, like I knew what drugs were, but I didn't really know about it. I just knew it was something bad. Like when my mum tried to explain to me when, my, when I was nine that my, my brother was being born, how babies were made. I still didn't get it. I was like, oh, don't get it. Like, I was just really immature. When I had my first period, I remember screaming at my mum going, oh, my God, I'm dying. And she's like, remember at school they taught you this? And I was like, yeah, but I still don't get it. <laughs> I was just really immature. And I was very hard done by. I was a very girl that, like, was like, the world owes me a favour. I wish I was never born. It's your fault I was born. Like, I didn't ask for this life. I was a very, very angry person. And I hated my dad. I hated him. I left home at 17. I hated him. I loved my mum, but I hated my dad. With well, a passion. And, and, and what, then, what was your dad suffering from? Was he schizophrenic? No, we didn't know. Yeah, he had schizophrenia. Okay. We didn't know. 
Mm-hmm. So what actually happened was my mum had always said to me, because my dad um, would be like, a man goes out to work, a woman stays at home. So us girls, like me, my sister and mum, had to do everything. Um, so if my dad said, would say to me, like, make me a coffee, and I'd say, no, you've got legs, <clears throat> and I'd get a beating for it, and I'd go to my room, and I'd be crying, but I'd be laughing, going, well, I didn't have to do it. So who's done it? Oh, my elder sister's done it. Because she would keep the peace. Because she would know the aftermath, and I wouldn't re- realize that there would be an aftermath. Because I'd be upstairs laughing in my room, going, "Well, I didn't have to do that." Well, I'd rather take a beating that lasts all of five minutes, go to my room for half an hour. I didn't have to do any washing up. I didn't have to clean. I didn't have to cook. And I was very. Uh, uh, if you told me, if you said some, told me to do something, I wouldn't do it. If you asked me, I would. And my dad couldn't get that concept. My mum could. She would say, "I need some help, Natalie. Can you help me wash up?" Yeah, of course, come, mum. My dad would be like, "You need to go in there and wash up." I'd be like, "No." <laughs> I would be like, go in there, do. Something. The more you said, told me to do something, I won't do it. Yeah, um, I was terrible. Um, but my mum, I, I used to say to my mum all the time, leave dad, leave dad. She would say, when when you're 18, when you're 18. Then when my younger brother was born, she'd say the same. When he's 18, and I didn't find out till years later from my dad that my actual younger brother, I can say it because he actually knows. Um, it, the only reason she fell pregnant with him was my dad put holes in the condom because she wanted to go out to work and he didn't want her to go out to work. She was training to be a nurse and he didn't want her to. That's how crazy warped up my dad's. So he, hold my on, dad's hold, on. <laughs> hold on, let me let's let's repeat that because you you said it a little fast and I want this and to the, sit in with people. Your father poked holes in a condom to get your mother pregnant. So, so she wanted. So she, she wouldn't go to work. She wouldn't go to work. That's he'd hurt his back, and so she was training to be a nurse so that she could go out to work and support the family. Wow, and he didn't like it. <laughs> that's pretty low. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, and then that's super sad that your your mother really was into donating organs, and she never got the chance, even in her. I dad. didn't even realize she hadn't done it for years. It was when I wrote my autobiography. I had a co-writer with because I worked crazy shifts I didn't have enough time to do it because we only had six months to do it uh-huh. and I just randomly said to her what happened to my mum's organs and she was like oh I don't know she went away and came back and she said they were gone with her and I was like no I just assumed they'd gone I just assumed I didn't really know that once you're totally technically totally dead that, that it's no good you've got to yeah. You know somebody that, let's just say, they're a daredevil, you know, and they jump motorcycles over buildings and they die doing it. You think, well, they died doing their passion. To deny your mother that, like, it, it just seems yeah. like such an injustice. Yeah. So. My mom knew she was going to get killed. It's really bizarre. Yeah. So this is why I forgave my dad in a way. If my mom hadn't said something to me, I would never have spoken to him again. So my mom finally decided to leave my father and she had a month away from him he didn't know where she was she literally he literally went to work came home and her and my son were gone we had no idea where they'd gone mm-hmm. we'd actually moved to the next town um, across my younger brother's a figure skater so that's where he trained so my mum didn't want him to stop training figure skating so we told him we'd moved to a different town yeah. and so for a whole month I saw a different side of my mum because my mum was a very quiet shy woman and I'd be walking down the street and she'd be like, four, what he does for me in a pair of tight jeans. And I'd be like, mom, this is so weird. I was like, okay. And she just changed. She just blossomed and she changed. And my dad managed to get hold of her. And, and he had said he had some post for her and he wanted to see my younger brother. Mm-hmm. So my mom, the day before, I, used, I actually moved away with my mom and I lived 
uh, we had luxury apartments and I lived two floors below her. And it was a very private intercom. You couldn't get in there if you didn't live there. So I used to leave my door unlocked. And my mum would come down the stairs, rattle the door, uh, the letterbox, and I'd say, come in, and she'd just walk in. And often I'd be in the bath. So she would sit with the toilet seat down and talk to me while I was having a bath. Mm -hmm. And she did that the night before she went to see my dad. And we was just talking, and I said to her, do you not hate dad? I absolutely hate him. Like, don't you just hate him? Because I could tell there was something wrong. That was I said. I said, what? I could tell there was something wrong. I said, what's wrong? And she said, I'm going to go see your dad tomorrow. And I said, why? And she said, he's got this post. Your brother wants to see him. No matter what, he's just dad. And I was like, and that's when I said, don't you hate him? I said, I really hate him. And she said, Natalia, I love him for who he is, not for what he does. Just like you're my daughter. You could go out and do all the crimes in the world. I'd still love you, but I wouldn't love what you've done. And I'd still, come and, I'd still be there for you, but I wouldn't love what the act that you've done. And that has always stayed in my head. That's the sort of person that my mum is. So it shows you she's a very forgiving person. She's somebody that even though my dad made her life hell, she still loved him for who he was, not for what he did. So if she hadn't said that to me, the next day when, my, when the police came, it would, it would never have, I would never have seen my dad ever. They applied you. I, I wouldn't probably have forgiven. Yeah. And the other reason I saw my dad is because when I got to the police station, the police man was like, you will not be seeing your father. You will not be doing this. The press are outside. You will not talk them, to them. And I was like, you what? <laughs> I was like, I demand to see my father right now. <laughs> Again, and he was like, you will not. Back, back I was going people. crazy. I was going, lock me up. And then I can see him. <laughs> and another policeman pulled me aside and said, look, the reason you can't see your father is because we have to interview him. We have to go through his forensically, through his clothes and stuff. But if you write him a note, I can pass it on. And I was like, oh, my dad's never going to want to see me. <laughs> he knows how much I hate him. Yeah. And so I wrote a note just saying, too far, too dad, I'm trying to see you. They won't let me, but I'll come and see you as much as I can, whenever I can. I love you, your loving daughter. That's all I put. And he thought it was my older sister, not me. Because oh. <laughs> my older sister was a daddy's girl and I was a mummy's girl. Yeah. But when my mum died, obviously the role was reversed. And so the next day when he saw me, he was very shocked. He had no idea it was going to be me. Definitely what my mum said to me is always stuck into me and I will always defend that my mum would not turn in her grave for what I did because she would never have said that to me. Because um, she said to me, actually, sorry, when I was in the bath, she said to me, I'm scared he's going to kill me. And that's when I said, don't go. Why are you going? Take me with you. And she said, it's not fair on your younger brother. He wants to see his dad and his friends. And I said, OK, come and get me the next day. And I was going out that night. I was going out um, clubbing with my friends. And it's funny because the last thing I said to my mum, she had some friends around and I was going, I'm going now, mum. Bye. Love you, mum. And she's like really embarrassed going, OK, love you. And I'm like, love you, mum. She's like, go. I'm like, love you, mum. So the last thing I actually said to my mum is, I love you, where my brother and, and my all the rest of my family can't say that because I was messing about with her yeah. um, trying to embarrass her. But my actual physical words were, I love you. And the next day, my, her and my younger brother came down to get me. They came into my flat saw me asleep and my mum said to my brother leave her she'll leave her she's sleeping we'll be fine and left Aww. and I remember the day my little brother told me that and I was like oh man if he'd just woken me up but then speaking to my dad because he was ill he said he would have done it another time because I even said would you have killed me if I'd come with my mum and he said no I would have done it another time he was actually planning it yeah he was planning it all so um so what happened was he got a he he says he got a vision from God. So my dad was always very religious, but he got kicked out of every religion because there was always something he didn't agree with and they didn't like it. So he was all 
So like we were Jehovah's Witnesses and then he got kicked out because he disagreed with something that they, they would say and he would have a different theory to it. He could read a Bible or any book and tell you, and he had a, photo, a photographic memory. So he could tell you verses and chapters. Um, and the only reason my mum, I think, stayed a Jehovah's Witness was because it got her out of the house because he let her still go. So every Sunday we would go to church, we'd go knocking on doors in the week, but it got her, her out and it got her friends. Mm-hmm. Um, because he didn't like her to have male friends or friends that were worldly women, um, because that's not what he agreed with. I always so like that term worldly. And I, I worldly heard, women, yeah. I heard it on the other Mary that talked yeah. to. She used the same <laughs> word. <laughs> my mum used to say, my mum actually went to the doctors and said, I think my husband's mentally not ill. And they said, well, you'll have to bring him in and he'll have to tell us that. And she was like, he's not going to do this. <laughs> because he had such a weird feeling. Like my friends, my best friend, I was never allowed to stay over at her house in case her dad might rape me in the middle of the night. My mum would be like, why would you even say that to a girl? Like, that's what he would think. And there's a man in the house, he could rape you. Like, how warped is your, is your brain that a girl can't go and, and sleep over at a friend's house? Because that might happen. He believed that because my mum and, da- and dad got married in front of God, you make a vow to God. So the only reason you can break that vow to God is if your husband beats you, he rapes you, or if he does something bad. You can't just say, fell out of love with him. Because if you do, God will punish you in the afterlife. So because my mum had left my dad for no apparent reason, just because she'd had enough, God was, going to put, God was telling my dad in the afterlife he's going to punish you, so you're not going to all be together. So he said that God came to him in a vision and said, you have to, you have to, she, you have to give her a choice. She comes home, everything will be fine. Or she takes a punishment. And the punishment is you have to kill her body to save her soul. So when my dad actually went to kill my mum, he said to her, you have to take the punishment. She thought he meant, oh, in the afterlife, God will punish me. So she was like, okay, I'll take my punishment. Not realizing, well, what he actually meant was, well, I've got to kill your body to save your soul. So in the afterlife, we can all be together. Is your father uh, in prison for the rest of his life for this? No, he was. He was in a mental hospital. We have prisons here and then we have prisons for mental people so they can't, can't get out. Um, and he died of cancer in 2006. Okay. And he actually said, this is my punishment from God for what I did for your mum. And he actually died on the date my mum left my dad nine years later. Mm-hmm. It was really bizarre. So obviously, once he got diagnosed and he had medicine, he got better. So then he knew what he'd done was so wrong. But then you can't, you can't go back in time once you... He said, I wish I'd known I was ill. If I'd known I was ill, I would have got help. It's interesting to me that you say you have prisons... And then you have prisons for the mentally ill or hospitals yeah. for the mentally ill. So we have, yeah, so we have um, four really high secure ones. So the one that my dad went to first, because um, he was on remand for a year. So he's in prison for a year while they go into court, while he's getting assessed by psychiatrists. Until, um, so at court, he actually didn't get done for murder. He gets done for diminishing of responsibility. I don't know if that's the same in America. It means that you, you, you're guilty because of you he was mentally insane not because you were a cold-blooded murderer we do have that here but in order to be deemed mentally unfit for trial it's it's a rarity it never happens and we have still had a trial yeah yeah you still have a trial while the court will Mm -hmm. give you it will say instead of murder and then you get sent to a a mental hospital yeah now they're not nice my dad was in prison for a year Mm -hmm. so he had no medication he was just 
still schizophrenia, so he's still talking rubbish about God. He went to a mental hospital. Within a week, he was asking me, how can he kill himself? Because it's so bad there. Because they literally just drug you up. So I went to visit him one day, and I, I, I actually had to stop visiting him because I got kicked out because it was just crazy. Because he was so pumped on drugs. I sat there and went, Dad, I'm a drug dealer. And he was like, yeah. I was like, Dad, I'm a prostitute. And he was like, yeah. Are you kidding me? He just he doesn't even he can't he's not listening. He doesn't understand anything. Mm-hmm. There was a uh, a young man in a corner just throwing himself down on the floor, picking himself back up, throwing himself on the floor. And I was like to my dad, "What's he here for? What's look at him? What's he doing?" And he said him and his girlfriend had a suicide pact. She died, he survived, and he got done for her murder, and they've put him in here. And it, he was just literally throwing himself on the floor, back up, like guys just walking around on the spot in circle. They're literally so drugged up just to keep the peace, because otherwise they would have riots in there. Mm-hmm. And he had to do a sentence. I can't remember how long he was in there for. I think about four four years. And then once you've been in there, they then assess that you're not such a risk to society because as long as you're on the, your medication, they take you to a less secure place. And the less secure place, they then start weaning you off the drug. You only need the drugs that you actually need. Mm-hmm. Um, and there what they do is uh, once you've been there long enough, they, you end up... Um, like on good behavior, you're basically allowed out. So they'll say you're allowed out for five minutes on the ground. If you're not back in five minutes, then you won't be allowed out again. And it's done on a trust basis like that. Mm-hmm. But there's no gates and nothing. There's a road. And if you step over on the sidewalk to the field, you'll get arrested. But there's nothing stopping you stopping. The freedom is there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing stopping you running for it. But they trust you enough that you're not going to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very crazy. And also, I could go out to like the local shop with him, or I could go and have a coffee with him, and they would write down what he was wearing. He would have a time he's got to be back at, and as long as he comes back on that time, the next time they'll let you go for a little bit longer, and the next time a little bit longer. So to start with, you have a chaperone that walks with you to the coffee shop, or walks with you to the end of the road, onto the grounds and back. So you give them, so you show them that you're responsible, that you don't need the chaperone. Um, so it's a less secure place. So it's a lot better. You don't. You don't um, feel so much like they're in a prison because we can go out while at the actual mental part, you're in a room. And they sit and they will write down everything you say. So my dad speaks Italian and English. I speak English, but I understand Italian. So if he wanted to tell me something about how bad it was, it was there. he would speak to me in Italian and we would get told off. Tell him he needs to speak in English because the person would be writing down everything we were saying. Mm-hmm. It was very bad. <laughs> so I only saw him a handful of times there because I would just the place down going what are you doing to him you're drugging him up in that mental institute there is some bad people in there Mm -hmm. like he'd say to me there's a woman called Beverly Allett and she's a nurse that went and killed lots of children and he'd say oh I went to school with Beverly Allett and I'd be like dad don't talk to her she's a murderer and he'd go yeah but so am I and I'd go oh yeah I'd be like (laughs) I'd be like oh no and there's some really bad like a a cannibal person there that killed somebody and and ate them like it's just it's full of crazy people and then you've got people that have done not that crazy things, yeah. like kill his girlfriend. They both decided to die and is in there drugged up. Um, but it does have a bad reputation. Cushy like the prison. Our prisons, they have PlayStations, TV. It's not even like the American. When I watch the American programs of your, your prisons, it's nothing like that. In their cells, they have TVs. They have PlayStations. They, they have, it, it's like luxury. Like my dad said, take me back to prison. It's like so easy, you know. It's like being on holiday. <laughs> compared to mental hospitals, yeah. This all sounds very alien to me as an American because we don't have any sort of rehabilitation such as that. Or if we do, it's it's a, it's a rarity and it's not. But they, they, the bad thing is when you get sent to a mental hospital, there's no 
time. So if you go to pre- if you go to court and you get done for murder, you get ten life, ten years, twenty years. There's no time. It's whenever a psychiatrist says, "Yep, you're fit and healthy to come out." So you can't even say, "Okay, Dad, right, you've got twenty five years. Start counting it down." And really, in England for murder, you probably get about eight years. He, when he died after nine years, he was still locked up. And even when they found out he had cancer and he was dying, they wouldn't let him out. And I was like, he's an old, frail man in a wheelchair with a catheter. Like, who's he going to murder? Like, I could just push him and he'd fall over. He's a frail old man, and you won't even give him the dignity to come out and die, like, with his family. Here's like, the other concept that would probably seem a little alien to American listeners is the fact that he murdered somebody and even though he's been diagnosed with schizophrenia we we don't have a lot of sympathy for that here we would still say well he's a danger to society so throw him behind but if he went to prison he would have been out because yeah. you normally get eight ten years do half of it and you're out yeah <laughs> so i could go out and murder someone and i would have done less time than my dad but because he mentioned god he gets a longer sentence i don't understand how that's all <laughs> uh, right that's cold-blooded murder you get less but if you're mentally, if, there's, if you're actually physically not well, you get longer. And also, the longer they're in there, the more the hospitals get paid by the government because it's all funded by our government because our medical is all funded by our government. We're not yeah. like America where you have to have private health care. It's all yeah. done. So the longer a patient is in their, ho- in their hospital, the more that hospital gets money for them. Yeah. So they're not going to start releasing people even if they are fine to come out because then they're going to lose money. <laughs> there's nobody in there. <laughs> wow. So how did this affect you after the, the, the murder happened and you... So when I saw my dad, it was, it was heartbreaking because he was behind a glass screen with... Um, it's like forensic material, you know, when they take all your clothes off. It's like um, you see it on like CSI when the guys go and look at a crime scene and they're dressed in like paper, uh, like we call it carrier bag material. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like a white jumpsuit. Yeah, I, I know what you're yeah. talking about. <laughs> so he was he was in that, and he was uh, crying. Now my dad never cried. He believes men should never cry in front of women. It should always be done behind closed door. And to see my dad cry like that, I was like, whoa. And him apologizing, saying, "I know what I've done is wrong, but I had to do it because God told me to." And I was like, whoa. And also, I remembered what my mum said that if that was me and I'd done that. My mum and dad would be there every day to visit me. So what I did is I made a pact with my dad, and that's what made me visit him. I said to him, I want you to tell me the truth, all of it. How you killed my mum, what her last words were, everything. And if I ever find out you've lied by court, by the police, you'll never see me again and I'll disown you. Right now, I'm the only person here, and I'm the only person that's coming to visit you. Everyone else has disowned you. So you tell me the truth, and I'll visit you. I'm not saying I'll forgive you or I accept what you've done but I will come and visit you. And he did. He never lied. He told me. Do you want me to tell you what he told me? Or? I, I don't know how you do it. Like, I, I, know, <laughs> I know so many people that are very forgiving, that are very strong, but I'm, I'm not that person. I, I actually will write people off, you know, for far I do now. <laughs> yeah. I do that now. Yeah. Okay. Like, in my life, I have three strikes and you're out. I yeah. don't just forgive people for everything. They'll all come and attack me and I'll be fine. Yeah, but, um, but, but if the one strike is really bad, I will write them off too. <laughs> but I needed information out of him. That was it. I needed to know. I needed, because I know that police lie. In England, police, some police do lie. I needed to know exactly. And there was details that only he could tell me. Like, I wanted to know what my mum's last words were. And her last words were, everyone will know you're a murderer now. 
I would never have found that information out without doing it. Mm-hmm. I would. I needed to know what he did to start with. I needed to know if he'd done this or whether the police were trying to make out he'd done it. So I was like, I need to know exactly what happened. I need you to tell me the truth. Did because she could have had an accident fall and the police were trying to say no, he's done it. I needed to know whether he'd actually done it. So I needed details. But afterwards, everyone disowned me. People were spitting at me in the street, saying your mum would would turn in her grave if she knew this. My whole family didn't want to know because they all thought I'd gone against my mum just for that one visit with my dad. And it was horrible. But what my dad did is he kept my mum alive because he told me stories every time I saw him about my mum. I had no one to talk to my mum about. My younger brother was nine. I couldn't really talk to him. He, was, he lived with my elder sister that was 10 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And she really didn't want to know. No. Um, <laughs> so I had nobody to talk to about my mum. And he would tell me stories, stories that I didn't even know. Like my mum my had told me that my mum and dad had never, they'd only ever been together, never had sex with anybody else. And I found out that my mum had slept around before she'd been with my dad. <laughs> he told me everything because he didn't, he was too scared to lie to me. I even found out that my mum was raped when she was younger. And my sister went crazy that my dad told me that. Why is he telling you this? He shouldn't be telling you this information. Like he's playing with your brain. And I was like, no, he's telling me things because he's scared because you knew. And if you told me and anybody tells me any information, I go back to him and say, you've lied to me. Why didn't you tell me this? He knows I was going to walk away. Hmm. So he was telling me the truth because he was so frightened that I was going to walk away that he would tell me things I didn't actually need to know. I didn't need to know about my mum was a bit slept around a little bit or my mum was raped. I didn't need to know this information. Paul knew. He knew my elder sister knew and he was scared he, she was going to tell me. Well, technically, you were his lifeline. Yeah. You were the so, only And he thing. was mine. Yeah. So he told me stories about things I didn't even know about. And that's what I miss now. I miss the stories of my mum. I miss keeping my mum alive because it, he never, ever went a minute without telling me a story about my mum. My younger brother, he's forgetting my mum. So he comes to me and asks me, Natalie, just tell me a story about mum that you know, because I'm, I, I can't remember. And he'll talk, and we'll sit, and, and, and I'll I remember a story, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember that now. And because he doesn't have anyone to talk to. Because my elder sister will, if you ask her a question, she'll answer yes or no, and then she stops the conversation. Yeah. Well, me, I just, I'll just talk about it forever. Like, well, I have no problem. It's just interesting that you almost got to know your mother better after. Yeah. And also I got to have a real father-daughter relationship because for once I had the upper hand mm-hmm. because he couldn't do He couldn't tell me what to do. He couldn't say to me, you can't dress like that, showing your arms because you're asking for trouble. He couldn't say anything. Even when I got into drugs and I told him I took drugs, he couldn't say anything because he thought she's going to walk away. He would just advise me like a father would do. He would just say, I'm really worried about you because this isn't right, rather than kicking off and screaming and shouting and demanding. How, so our roles totally changed. How bad was your drug use when you went down that it, dark path? It, I was with a friend that we, we used to go out clubbing and I, she took some ecstasy tablets and I was like, what are you on? That's what I need. Because I never drank alcohol. I was teetotal. And yes. I never drank alcohol until I donated my kidney and I woke up craving alcohol. This is really bizarre. Can you believe that? And now I do drink alcohol. <laughs> but I was teetotal. I never drank alcohol. I just didn't like the taste of it. Yeah. But, but now you're keeping. I you're, gave my kid, kidney up, and that was my first thing I asked for. I, I need a drink. And my friend was like, You don't drink? I was like, I know. I think I need to start. I'm but, craving alcohol. But now yeah. you're making your one kidney work harder. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't drink a lot, but I yeah. do like a drink every so often. So, so I would never drink. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I saw my friend on the struggle. I was like, I, need, I want what you're having. And I took it. When you take that drug for that evening, my mum wasn't murdered. 
you could tell me my brother would be murdered and I would be fine. Everything in life was just happy and for you. Till obviously the drugs wear off and you get the come down. But the high always seemed to be enough to, to make up for the come down from it. And I was a lost soul. I didn't know what to do. I'd lost my mum. I'd lost my dad. I was a 19-year-old that was really mature, didn't have nowhere to go. I ended up going and living in the house where my mum was murdered because I had nowhere to go. I got so lost and nobody to advise me. I didn't have my mum there to help me. Um, and, and so I lost the place that I was living at and I ended up having to go back to the house where my mum was murdered, which is just crazy. Like, I would Because my dad owned that house. Yeah. So yeah. Where, you had but nowhere yeah. else to go. <laughs> and I had nowhere to go. So I lost my way. So I got in with the wrong crowd. And mm. I just was like a little sheep. And just give me anything so I can numb this pain. Just numb it. And that's what I did for many years. Just numb it. Just numb this pain. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to feel it. Yeah, people use, and, use drugs for different reasons. But what people yeah. truly don't understand is drugs work and they will shut the pain off like a yeah. switch. And even like the night my mom was murdered, that night I was out. It's like I was out clubbing. You would never have known that girl's mom would just be murdered. Like, I watch programs where you'll see somebody's died in, the, like, the Amanda Knox one. They said, oh, that's not the way somebody behaves. And I was like, if you'd looked at me the night my mum was murdered, you would have thought I murdered her. You would have said, that's not the way somebody behaves that hasn't murdered somebody. Because there is no way to deal with something. You can't say, like, the Amanda Knox, you can't say that just, that just because you've caught a picture of her kissing someone doesn't mean that she's, she's a murderer. Because if you looked at me, I would have been a murderer. Because I was out just going, just getting take me away from this situation. I cannot think of what's happened today. I've got to be out there. Get me out. Get me out. Yeah. Because you just, there's just no way to, how do you deal with that? There's just no rule book. And it's not something you're taught to deal with. Because mm -hmm. it shouldn't really happen to people. So everybody deals with it differently. So we just sort of rationalized it a little bit because I needed to see my father. I needed answers. I needed questions. Mm -hmm. And I'm the same in life now. Whenever anything bad happens, last year I got out of a very mentally abusive relationship. I lost a baby. I have to find the reason why something happens to me because to me, there's a reason why things happen to you. There's lessons to be learned from him. You might not see him at the time, but you will. So for me, what happened to my mom, the lesson it taught me was that I have forgiveness in me and it taught me I'm stronger than I, than I think I am. And it also made me a better person because I learned forgiveness and I'd never knew what forgiveness was before. I was a bitter, twisted teenager and I learned to look for the good in things. And that when something bad happens to you, it doesn't, it's not the end of the world. There's always something that good can happen from something negative. And what happened to me, I don't let it define me. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem is people have tragedies and they, they, they turn that tragedy into self-pity or into, into anger and hatred. And I learned not, I could have gone that way and I didn't. And I'm glad I don't have that hatred in me. I have, I released it. And forgiveness is not about the other person. That's what people think. Forgiveness is about yourself. You're saying you don't have control over me anymore. Because when somebody, when you can't forgive somebody, they have control over you because you're thinking about them all the time and what, how, what bad they've done to you. Whether, whether they realize it. Yeah. Whether they realize it or not, you've, you've. Amazing blessing. Yeah. Yeah. So even now, whenever something bad happens, I know there's a lesson to be learned. I just don't, might not know at that time when it's painful, but I know down the line there's a reason why that happened to me. You take yeah. it the way people should. You, it takes time to, I guess, reprogram your brain to understand and learn from the, the bad things because most of us will just take the bad thing and say life sucks and it 
sucks more every day, but you're, you take it as, okay, this bad thing happened and now I am stronger because of it. So, and I, cause I do a little bit of motivational speaking with schools and I teach children that you have a choice in life. So you don't have a choice when, if something bad happens to you, if you get raped, molested, something happened, but you choose how the outcome of that, you choose how that defines you. You choose whether you turn that in, into a positive or you turn that into a negative. You have that choice. But people don't realize you have that choice. You have a choice. In life, everything, you have a choice. There's a consequence to every choice, but you have a choice. Like for me, every, it was wrong what I did. Everyone was saying it's wrong, it's wrong. But why is it wrong? Because I've made a different choice to what you are. You're just going, yep, I hate him, I hate him. He should burn in hell. Well, I'm actually learning about compassion and learning to actually find out why. And I do that now. I have to find out why. Why There's a reason for things. Why has somebody done that? So if I got burgled, I'd want to know why that person burgled me. Was it because you were starving, because you were hungry, because you just saw it as an opportunity? I need to get into why you did it. And if I think you've got a valid reason, then I'd be like, okay, he was homeless. He was starving. He came in and he stole to feed himself. I understand. I have to find the logic in why people do stuff. Well, if you listen to my... I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> no, it's I, I'm right there with you. I mean, it, it, I don't know if you heard the, the Generation Y personal story when the guy walked into my house, the intruder, yeah. and then I found out later he was probably a runaway kid. And then I got my why. I got the reason yeah. why he was in my house. And I, it made me feel better and it made me sympathize with him. And when the cops dropped the case and closed my report... I didn't care. I was like, well, you know, no harm, no foul. He didn't do anything, and he was in a desperate state. So, but if you hadn't known that, you would have just thought it's a horrible person just coming into my house and stole. How dare he? You have to look at the, the bigger picture, and people don't. They live in that grief. They live in that pain. And I didn't want to live like that. I'd lived that all my teenage life. I wanted to live in peace. And I knew my mum would support. My mum would have been like, "Wow, I'm so proud you did that," because I never forgot my mum. I love my mum. I talk to my dad about my mum all the time. But people didn't see that. They just saw, oh, she's sticking by her dad. She doesn't love her mum anymore. And that's where the kidney came from because I wanted to change my mum's legacy. And I wanted to do it so that people could see that my life wasn't all about my dad, that I love my mum and I love my mum just as much as my dad. Just hearing your story, like the incident is almost the minor point to all of this. And I'm, yeah. and you've really overcome that. And I'm I'm sh- shocked and, and so happy to hear it because it's not the And I got lost along the way. Like I got into drugs. I got lost along the way. Yeah. It's not like it just, I just woke up and went, yeah, forgive my dad. And I never forgave my dad instantly. It took many years for me to say to my dad, I actually now forgive you. There was lots of, t- lots of times I said to my dad, I hate you. Can't believe you did this. Why did you take my mom's life? I mean, can't deal with this, like the pain. And I'd, I'd be horrible and nasty to him. And in the end, though, I was like, do you know what? I forgive you. Fair do. Like, like mm-hmm. you was mentally ill. You recognized that you was ill. Now you're on medication. You're not talking about God anymore. And he even said once he'd got his medication that I actually know what I did was wrong now. He said, if I'd known, I would have tried to get help. But I didn't, I didn't know I was ill. Because you don't. When you're mentally ill, you don't that's your world. You think that that's correct. Mm-hmm. You don't know that that's wrong. So he took his medication and was like, whoa, it's a whole new world. Yeah. And he understood what his actions yeah. were and the, and, and that they were wrong. And that's, that's the difference is when you, you know, I mean, people that are not mentally ill and kill people don't, some of them don't feel bad. They have no repentance. Yeah. They have no remorse. He cried every single day. Yeah. From the minute my mom died every day, crying, apologizing, saying to me, I can't believe, you even here I'm so sorry like how can I ever make up for this 
It's like, well, you can't go back in time and change things. And people don't understand that as well. You can't go back into time. Like this second now in, a, in another second is gone. You can't go back and change things. So you've got to live with it somehow. Mm. You've got to deal with it somehow. And if you live in that unforgiving place, it's not healthy for yourself and you're just hurting yourself. Uh, but at the same time, I understand people, like my sister never forgave. And I can understand that she doesn't, that's up to her. But people can never understand me. They just, they're like, oh, I could never do that. But if you'd said to me, before my mum died, your father's going to kill your mum in a year's time and you'll forgive him, I would have been like, no way. Yeah. I would have killed him myself. <laughs> yeah. Until you're in a situation, you really don't, don't know how to deal with it. But I had two ways to go. I either killed myself and I would have been in a mental hospital mm-hmm. or I find a, a way to deal with this. It's my way of dealing with it. And even now, I look for the positive in things and I try and find the reason why things happen or things have happened to me. And I believe in karma. Mm-hmm. And like my dad said, he said, this is my punishment when he got cancer and died. This is my punishment for what happened to your mom. And that's what he's got to live with. What happens in the afterlife, I have no idea. And if it might have been true what he said, that there's an afterlife, I have no idea. But I said to him, I'll tell you when I meet you on the other side. If I don't meet you, there's nothing there. Yeah. So I've still got two paid forwards to do over my lifetime. I've just got to do something little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I, The guy who has my kidney now knows that he has to do his paid forwards. So mm-hmm. um, I never ask him if he's done it or not because that's up to him he passes it on or not yeah but hopefully he's done his paid forward and it's so strange as well because i got my award by john bon jovi and i forgot he was in paid forward because i was so starstruck yeah. <laughs> i was like i forgot he's the reason i actually donated it was his movie <laughs> <laughs> uh i mean besides him handing the award to you did you get to talk to him afterwards or anything yeah, oh yeah for quite a while yeah but i was just so starstruck because I, I just because they get they ask you to give um five celebrities that you love um, so they can get a right, a good idea. Mm-hmm. Now, the only American on my list was Pink. I said, if you could get Pink now, that, that's my dream come true. <laughs> I didn't even know about, I didn't, I didn't even think about John Bon Jovi, but I knew he was coming because you have a meal the, de- the night before with the presenter so that you're not nervous on the stage. Mm-hmm. And they said to me, oh, we, we've got Bon Jon Jovi coming next year. He's never been before. And I was like, what? I was like, oh, and he's, and he's doing an award. And what happened was he actually drove, there and sat across the road in a cafe three hours early so that he didn't get stuck in traffic so he could make the award and yeah and then they give you a brochure of all the people winning the award and he asked if he could present all an award and he got this brochure and he went through and read through all the stories and actually picked mine so he actually picked me himself me himself I was like whoa (laughs) um I actually saw him he walked past my table before because you have dinner and everything before the awards and I was like, oh, my God, it's Bon Jon Jovi. And I was, like, taking a picture. Hi. I was like, I'm one of the winners today. Can I have a picture taken? He's like, yeah, knowing all full well, he knew all. <laughs> and I was like, no way is John Bon Jovi here. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I never even twigged it. Because he wasn't on my list of people. The other four people were English people. And they were there at the awards. I kept yeah. thinking, one of these people are going to give me my awards. Why, but, why yeah. wouldn't John pick you? I mean. <laughs> I don't. Because there's other people there that, to me, are, are people. Like, people that say that, I was just about to say, save someone's life. But. Technically, that's what I've done. But there was a girl there that I don't know if you know if she's famous in America. She's called Katie, and she got thrown acid. An ex-boyfriend threw acid on her face, and now she supports people with who have face uh, disfigurements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Simon Cowell is her, her patron of her charity. Now she, to me, is a hero. She's done a lot of documentaries and stuff. So she, people like her were there. There were there was other people to me that have deserved the award like when I got when I got told I won the award I wasn't going to take the award to start with because I just it just felt wrong it felt wrong that I was gaining from 
because when you donate a kidney, you're not allowed to gain anything from it. You're doing it as a selfless act. You can't mm-hmm. ask for money for, off the person. And it felt like I was, it wasn't right when there's other people in England that have saved a life. But the charity that I work with just said, take it for us. So you're taking it on our behalf. And actually, the figures for the next year went sky high from my award where people had gone to the um, hospitals and said, we want to donate a kidney. We saw that girl on TV. Mm-hmm. So I've so really, my mum saved other people's lives from it. But I didn't want to take it because to me, I say, but I didn't save a life. And everyone goes, yeah, but you did. And I go, yeah, but I don't see it like that. <laughs> I mean, if you ask the guy who's got my kidney, Chris, if you ask his mum, I've saved a life. If you ask Chris, I've saved a life. He, he literally was dying. He, heroes um, never feel like heroes. Yeah. His, his mum is adorable, but it's really hard because you have to keep them at arm's length because they they feel so indebted to you. So, so like my car broke down one time, uh, got uh, written off. And she was on the phone, do you need a new car? I was like, no, no, you have to, you can't tell them any problems because they want to fix you. Yeah. They want to fix everything. Like mm-hmm. she says to me, my dream is that you get married and have children. And she, she just wants to make sure your life is perfect. So she knows you get struggling in any way. They want to help you. So I have to keep them at arm's length. I can't tell them anything too personal if anything's going wrong because they'll be straight there trying to help. It's really hard because they're adorable. Mm-hmm. I go, she lives at the beach. So every summer I go and spend a weekend with her. Um, and I spend more time with his mum than him. Because <laughs> he's a very manly, manly, quite reserved, shy guy. And me and his mum talk all night long. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you have to, it's very, like even going out for a meal, we're fighting over who to pay. It's, <laughs> it's just, you can't gain anything from it. It's like, I did this for this reason. I can't gain anything from it. So it's really hard because they just care. But they, you can't let them help you because it defeats the whole object. Because they're only really your friends because you saved the life. Yeah, that's a hard situation to be put in because I, I totally yeah. get where you're coming from. And, and Adore it. I, I'd I, love to adopt her like my mom, but I have to really <laughs> keep her arm's length. It's so hard. And I, I think so, what you're doing is right. I mean, if you like her, then you're, you're, yeah. you're involving her. You're, you're, you don't mind the, them. You, you like them, but you just yeah. can't let them become... Uh, yeah, I, I get it. It's hard to it's explain. It's really that. hard, yeah, because they're adorable. And I just can't even imagine, like, knowing my son's going to die. Every time I see her, she cries because <laughs> it's a mother losing a son. Mm-hmm. And, like, it, we donated in the February, and in the Christmas, they knew it was his last Christmas. So they'd all geared up that this would be the last Christmas ever. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> like, some random stranger is a perfect match for her son. Because that's what she said. She calls me the angel. I said, yeah, but I didn't pick your son. A list on a computer picked me. <laughs> I didn't actually go and say that's the person I wanted to give my kidney to. It was uh, all randomly done on a computer. Yeah. But to her, God answered their prayers. So, yeah. But you were the one that stepped up. You were the one to donate. So if you hadn't... Would... But it's funny because he messages me, me and your mum are doing this, me and your mum are doing that, me and your mum are going on holiday. I'm like, oh my God, it's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> me and your mom. <laughs> I like my mum gets to live a life again because obviously he lives a a better life than we do because he knows what it's like not to have much of a life because he's on dialysis and stuff. So he, do, he goes on more holidays than I know. And he does, he lives his life more than probably the normal Joe blog would live their life. They just stroll along. He really lives his life. Yeah. So it's nice that my mum gets to do all these things. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Do you, do you like John Bon Jovi when you, when you talk to him? <laughs> oh, he was so nice. Yeah. But I was just so starstruck. I couldn't speak <laughs> the whole night. I was even in the toilets crying to my best friend saying, if you love me, take me home. I don't want to do this because it's very nerve wracking. You've got 10,000 celebrities mm-hmm. staring at you. <laughs> and these are like really famous. Even the Royal family was there. Mm-hmm. So it's, and the prime minister's there. 
it's really nerve-wracking. I was like, I don't want to do this. That's why I ended up crying on the stage as well, because <laughs> I'm not a crier. I was just like, take me home. This is horrible. But I got to go the next year because I did some publicity for them, mm-hmm. um, which is funny because I did a relo- the radio station back home and they attacked me for my, what happened to my dad. It's really bad. <sighs> but luckily, the guy who runs the awards felt so bad. I was like, can I get some free tickets for this year? He's like, yeah. And I got to go the next year and really enjoyed it because I wasn't any on stage. I just got to really enjoy it. Yeah. And um, I really enjoyed that one. I didn't actually enjoy the award one, but I enjoyed the, the next year one. Yeah, that was great. Um, and I got to sit with The Wanted. They were, I don't know if they're big in America. No, they were big. They had a TV show, The Wanted. I, I've heard of it, but I've never watched yeah. it. Yeah, so I got to sit with them and, um, and, and they were really cool. Yeah, so yeah, it was Ariana Grande's boyfriend at the time, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was really cool. They got, and then they start tweeting you, and then it just explodes from there, yeah. So now what I try to do with my Twitter is I just do inspirational quotes. Mm-hmm. So I've been a bit lax recently, but, um, yeah, I just try and do quotes that will cheer people up or think people are going through that and will help them. What's, what's, um, your, and, what's your Twitter, if you wanted to share it? Oh, it's at Natalie Ojano. I might not be able to spell it, though. <laughs> That's what everyone has trouble with. All, the spelling n-a-t-a-l-i-a and it's a-g-g-i-a-n-o correct oh great Thank and then you. yeah i try to do um school talks as well and do um inspirational talks to kids so i just tell my life story and show them how i turned a positive to a negative mm-hmm. yeah. um, and that's really nice when you hear all the kids going through bad and they think i thought i was going to be stuck in this forever but if i, I realize i have a choice at a certain age i can walk out the door and i can go do what i want to do i'm not stuck um or they, they get told that if they don't pass their schools, that that's the end of the, the world. And then they see that I didn't pass any in my schooling, yet I have jobs with people that went to university. Yeah. You don't have to. Like, if you fail, it's not the end of the world. People think I'm a very successful person, but I, uh, I dropped out of college. I, yeah. I, I just couldn't afford it, you know. And, and the kids I, don't understand that a piece yeah. of paper isn't the end of the world because some people are not good at schooling. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you can't, you're going to end up working at McDonald's. That's what they all think. Oh, I end up at McDonald's. And that's not the case. Yeah, I just had no interest in most of the information they were trying to give me. But here, here I am. You know, I can read about a, a true crime or a murder or something, and I'm totally engrossed by it, and I can produce a show about it. But give me. That's what I find weird. Is I love true crime. Like I love all your podcasts. <laughs> but isn't it that sick that I'm into all that murder when that happened to me? I love true crime. No, it fascinates me. I don't think it's sick at all. I think it's. It, I almost think it's separate. There's there's your life, and then there's what you what you like. But all all the mid. But my mum did too. So maybe it's just a thing we did. She always made me watch like crime programs. Yeah, I love it. I'm so intrigued. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, have a good one. You too. Bye. All right. Bye bye.